Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes. Today, we are unveiling part one of a three-part series on the iconic Billy the Kid and the Lincoln County War. The 1870s in southeastern New Mexico saw a bloody cattle feud that would redound through history, leaving us some of the most colorful characters and some of the wildest incidents known in the Wild West and a bunch of fodder for Hollywood movies. We're going to begin with Emerson Huff's Story of the Outlaw, a study of the Western Desperado with historical narratives of famous outlaws, the stories of noted border wars, vigilante movements, and armed conflict on the frontier. Chapter 14, The Lincoln County War, the bloodiest, most dramatic, and most romantic of all the border wars. First authentic story ever printed of the bitterest feud of the Southwest. The entire history of the American frontier is one of rebellion against the law. But is it rebellion if those participating have not yet recognized any authority of the law? The frontier predated anarchy. It broke no social compact, for it had never made one. Its population asked no protection except that afforded under the stern rule of the six-shooter. The anarchy of the frontier, if we may call it such, was sometimes little more than self-interest against self-interest. This was the true description of the events surrounding the Lincoln County War. The Lincoln County War, fully speaking, embraced three wars. The Pecos War of the early 70s, the Herald War of 1874, and the Lincoln County War proper, which may be said to have begun in 1874 and to have ended in 1879. The actors in these conflicts were all intermingled. There was no blood feud at the bottom of this fighting. It was the war of self-interest against self-interest, each side supported by numbers of fighting men. At that time, Lincoln County, New Mexico was about as large as the state of Pennsylvania. For judicial purposes, it was annexed to Doña Ana County, and its territories included all of present Lincoln, Eddy, and Chavez counties, and part of what is now Doña Ana County. It extended west practically as far as the Rio Grande River, and embraced a tract of mountains and high tableland nearly 2,000 miles square. Out of this mountain chain, to the east and southeast, ran two beautiful mountain streams, the Rio Bonito and the Rio Ruidoso both flowing into the Hondo, which continues onto the flat valley of the Pecos River, once the natural pathway of Texas cattle herds bound north for Utah and the mountain territories, and hence the natural pathway also for many lawful or lawless citizens from Texas. At the close of the Civil War, Texas was full of unbranded and unowned cattle. Out of the town of Paris, Texas, which was founded by his father, came one John Chisholm, one of the most typical cowmen that ever lived. Bold, fearless, shrewd, unscrupulous, genial, magnetic. He was the man of all others to occupy a kingdom which had heretofore had no ruler. John Chisholm drove the first herds up the Pecos Trail to the territorial market. He held at one time perhaps 80,000 head of cattle under his brand, the Long Eye and Jingle Bob. Moreover, 
He had power of attorney from a great many cowmen in Texas and lower New Mexico, authorizing him to take up any trail cattle which he found under their respective brands. He carried a tin cylinder, large as a water spout, that contained, some said, more than a thousand of these powers of attorney. At least it's certain he had papers enough to give him wide authority. Chisholm riders combed every northbound herd. If they found the cattle of any of his, quote, friends, they were cut out and turned on the Chisholm range. There were many little fellas, small cattlemen, nested here and there on the flanks of the Chisholm herds. What more natural than that they should steal from him in case they found a market of their own? That was much easier than raising cows of their own. Now, there was a market up this winding Bonito Valley at Lincoln and Fort Stanton. The soldiers at Fort Stanton and the Indians of the Mescalera Reservation nearby needed supplies. There were others besides John Chisholm who might win a beef contract now and then and need cattle to fill it. At the end of the Civil War, there was in New Mexico what was known as the California Column, which joined the forces of the New Mexican Volunteers under an officer known as Major L.G. Murphy. After the war, a great many men settled near the points where they were mustered out in the South and the West. It was thus with Major Murphy, who located as post-trader at the little frontier post known as Fort Stanton, which was founded by Captain Frank Stanton in 1854 in the Indian days. John Chisholm located his Bosca Grandy ranch nearby in about 1865, and Murphy came to Fort Stanton in about 1866. In 1875, Chisholm dropped to his South Spring River ranch, and by that time Murphy had been thrown out of the position as post-trader by Major Clendenning, commanding officer, who did not like his methods. He had dropped nine miles down the Benito from Fort Stanton with two young associates under the firm name of Murphy, Riley, and Dolan, sometimes spoken of as L.G. Murphy & Co., Murphy was a hard-drinking man, yet withal something of a student. He was intelligent, generous, bold, and shrewd. He staked every little cowman in Lincoln County, including a great many who hung on the flanks of John Chisholm's herds. These men, in turn, were, in their ethics, bound to support him and his methods. Murphy was king of the Benito country. Chisholm was king of the Pecos. Not merchant, but cowman, and caring for nothing which had not grass or water on it. Here, then, were the two rival kings. Each had occasion for a beef contract. The result is obvious to anyone who knows the ways of the remoter West in earlier days. The times were ripe for trouble. Murphy bought stolen beef and furnished bran instead of flour on his Indian contracts, as the government records show. His henchmen held the Chisholm herds as their legitimate prey. Thus, we now have our stage set and peopled for the grim drama of a bitter border war. The Pecos War of the early 1870s was mostly an indiscriminate killing among cowmen and cattle thieves, and it cost many lives, though it had no beginning and no end. The Texas men, hard riders and cheerful shooters for the most part, came pushing up the Pecos and into the Benito Canyon. Among these, in 1874, 
were four brothers known as the Harold Boys, Bill, Jack, Tom, and Bob, who had come up from Texas in 1872. Two of them located ranches on the Rio Doso, being staked therein by Major Murphy, King for that part of the countryside. The Herald Boys undertook to run the town of Lincoln, and a foolish justice ordered a constable to arrest them. One Gillum, an ex-sheriff, told the boys to put on their guns. On that night, there were killed Gillum, Bill Harold, Dave Warner, and Martinez, the Mexican constable. The dead body of Martinez was lying in the street the next morning with a deep crosscut on the forehead. From that time on, for the next five years, it was no uncommon thing to see dead men lying in the streets of Lincoln. The Herald boys had sworn revenge. There was a little dance in an adobe one night in Lincoln when Ben Harold and some Texas men from the Seven Rivers country rode up. They killed four men and one woman that night before they started back to Seven Rivers. From that time on, it was Texas against the law, such as it was. No resident places the number of victims of the Herald War at less than 40 or 50, and it's believed that at least 75 would be more correct. These killings proved the weakness of the law, for none of the Herald gang was ever punished. As for the Lincoln County War proper, the magazine was now handsomely laid. Only the spark was needed. What would that naturally be? Either an actual law court, or else a woman. In due time, both were forthcoming. The woman in the case is sometimes spoken of as the cattle queen of New Mexico. She ultimately bore the name of Mrs. Susan Barber. Her maiden name was Susan Hummer, and she was born in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Susan Hummer was a granddaughter of the Spangler family, a noble family of Germany and very old. George Spangler was cupbearer to Godfrey, Chancellor of Frederick Barbarossa, and was with the latter on crusade when Barbarossa was drowned in the Syrian River in 1190. The American seat of this old family was in York County, Pennsylvania, where the first Spangler settled in 1731. It was from this tenacious and courageous ancestry it was from this tenacious and courageous ancestry that there sprang this figure of a border warfare in a region wild as Barbarossa's realm centuries ago. On August 23, 1873, in Atchison, Kansas, Susan Hummer was married to Alexander McSween, a young lawyer fresh from the Washington University Law School of St. Louis. McSween was born in Charlestown, Prince Edward Island, and was educated in the first place as a Presbyterian minister. He was a man of good appearance, of intelligence and address, and of rather more polish than the average man. He was an orator, a dreamer, a visionary, a strange, complex character. He was not a fighting man and belonged anywhere in the world rather than on the frontier of the bloody southwest. His health was not good, and he resolved to journey to New Mexico, and he and his young bride started overland with a good team and conveyance and reached the little placita of Lincoln 
in the Benito Canyon on March 15, 1875. Outside of the firm of Murphy, Riley, and Dolan, there were at that time but one or two other American families. McSween started up in the practice of law. There appeared in northern New Mexico at about this time an Englishman by the name of J.H. Tunstall, newly arrived in the West in search of investment. Tunstall was told that there was good open cattle range to be had in Lincoln County. He came to Lincoln, met McSween, formed a partnership with him in the banking and mercantile business, and, moreover, started for himself and altogether independently a horse and cattle ranch on the Rio Feliz, a day's journey below Lincoln. Now, King Murphy of Lincoln County found a rival business growing up directly under his eyes. He liked this no better than King Chisholm liked the little cowmen on his flanks in the Seven Rivers country. Things were ripening still more rapidly for trouble. Presently, the immediate cause made its appearance. There had been a former partner and friend of Major Murphy in the post-tradership at Fort Stanton, Colonel Emil Fritz, who established the Fritz Ranch a few miles below Lincoln. Colonel Fritz, having amassed a considerable fortune, concluded to return to Germany. He had insured his life with the American Insurance Company for $10,000 and had made a will leaving this policy or the greater part of it, to his sister. The latter had married a clerk at Fort Stanton by the name of Skoland, but did not get along well with her husband. Heretofore, no such thing as divorce had been known in that part of the world. But courts and lawyers were now present, and it occurred to Mrs. Skoland to have a divorce. She sent to Mr. McSween for legal counsel and for a time lived in the McSween house. Now came news of the death, in Germany, of Colonel Emil Fritz. His brother, Charlie Fritz, undertook to look up the estate. He found the will and insurance policy had been left with Major Murphy. But Major Murphy, accustomed to running affairs in his own way, refused to give up the Emil Fritz will and forced McSween to get a court order appointing Mrs. Skoland administrator of the Fritz estate. Not even in that capacity would Major Murphy deliver to her the will and insurance policy when they were demanded. And it is claimed that he destroyed the will. Certainly, it was never probated. Murphy was accustomed to keep this will in a tin can hid in a hole in the adobe wall of his store building. There were no safes at that time and place. The policy had been left as security for a loan of $900, advanced by a firm known as Spiegelberg Brothers. Few ingredients were now lacking for a typical melodrama. Meantime, the plot thickened by the failure of the insurance company. McSween, in the interest of Mrs. Skoland, now went east to see what could be done in the collection of the insurance policy. He was able finally in 1876 to collect the full amount of $10,000, and this he deposited in his own name in a St. Louis bank. He had been obliged to pay the Spiegelbergs the face value of their loan before he could get the policy to take east with him. 
He wished to be secured against this advancement and reimbursed as well for his expenses, which, together with his fee, amounted to a considerable sum. Moreover, the German minister enjoined McSween from turning over any of this money as there were other heirs in Germany. Major Murphy owed McSween some money. Colonel Fritz also died owing McSween $3,300, fees due on legal work. Yet Murphy demanded the full amount of the insurance policy from McSween again and again. Murphy, Riley, and Dolan now sued out an attachment on McSween's property and levied on the goods in the Tunstall McSween store. The law was now doing its work, but there was a very liberal interpretation put upon the law's intent. As construed by Sheriff William Brady, the writ applied also to the Englishman Tunstall's property in cattle and horses on the Rio Feliz ranch, which, of course, was high-handed illegality. McSween's statement that he had no interest in the Feliz ranch served no purpose. Brady and Murphy were warm friends. The lawyer McSween had accused them of being something more than that, allies and conspirators. McSween and Tunstall bought Lincoln County script cheap, but when they presented it to the county treasurer, Murphy, it was not paid. And it was charged that he and Brady had made away with the county funds. That was never proved, for, as a matter of fact, no county books were ever kept. McSween started the first set ever known in Lincoln County. At this time, there was, working for Tunstall on the Felice Ranch, a noted desperado, Billy the Kid, who a short time formerly had worked for John Chisholm. Billy, at this stage of the advancing troubles, appears rather as a third party, or as holding one point of a triangle, whose other two corners were occupied by the Murphy and McSween factions. Whether or not it was a legal posse which went out to serve the attachment on the Tunstall cattle, or whether or not a posse was necessary for that purpose, the truth is that a band of men on February 13, 1878, did go out under some semblance of the law and in the interests of the Murphy people's claim. Some state that Billy Morton was chosen by Sheriff Brady as his deputy and as leader of this posse. Certainly, the band was suited for any desperate occasion. With it was one Tom Hill, who had killed several men at different times, and who had been heard to say that he intended to kill Tunstall. There was also Jesse Evans, just in from the Rio Grande country, and, apart from Billy the Kid, the most redoubtable fighter in all that country. Evans had formerly worked for John Chisholm, and had been the friend of Billy the Kid, but these two had now become enemies. This posse rode across the mountains to the Rio Doso Valley on their way to the Rio Felice. They met, coming from the Tunstall Ranch, Tunstall himself, in company with his foreman Dick Brewer, John Middleton, and Billy the Kid. When the Murphy posse came up with Tunstall, he was alone. His men were, at the time, chasing a flock of wild turkeys along a distant hillside. When called upon to halt, Tunstall did so, and then came up toward the posse. You wouldn't hurt me, boys, would you? 
he said as he approached leading his horse. When, within a few yards, Tom Hill said to him, Why, hello, Tunstall, is that you? And almost with the words, fired upon him with his six-shooter and shot him down. Some say that Hill shot Tunstall again, and a young Mexican boy called Pantalon beat in his skull with a rock. They put Tunstall's hat under his head and left him lying there beside his horse, which was also killed. His folded coat was under the horse's head. His body, lashed on a burro's back, was brought over the mountains by his friends that night into Lincoln, 20 miles distant. Fifty men took up the McSween fight that night, for, in truth, the killing of Tunstall was murder and without justification. That was the beginning of the actual Lincoln County War. Dick Brewer, Tunstall's foreman, was now leader of the McSween fighting men. McSween, of course, supplied him with color of legal authority. He was appointed special constable. Neither party had difficulty in obtaining all the legal papers required. Each party was presently to have a sheriff of its own. Meantime, there was at Lincoln an accommodating justice of the peace, John P. Wilson, who was ready to give either faction any sort of legal paper it demanded. Dick Brewer, Billy the Kid, and nearly a dozen others of the first McSween posse started to the lower country, where lived a good many of Murphy's friends, small cowmen and others, on the Rio Penasco. About six miles from the Pecos, they came across a party of five men, two of whom, Billy Morton and Frank Baker, had been present at the killing of Tunstall. Baker and Morton surrendered under promise of safekeeping and were held for a time at Roswell. On the trail from Roswell to Lincoln, at a point near Agua Negra, both these men, while kneeling and pleading for their lives, were deliberately shot and killed by Billy the Kid. We're going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it.
And now, back to the Lincoln County War. There was, with the Brewer Posse, a buffalo hunter by the name of McCloskey, who had promised to take care of these prisoners. Joe McNabb of the Posse shot and killed McCloskey in cold blood. These victims were killed March 7, 1878. There had now been deliberate murder committed upon the one side and upon the other. There were many men implicated on each side. These men, in self-interest, now drew apart together. The factions of necessity became more firmly established. It may be seen that there was very little principle at stake on either side. The country was now simply going wild again. It meant to take the law into its own hands, and the population was divided into these two factions, to one or the other of which every resident must perforce belong. A choice, and sometimes a quick one, was an imperative necessity. The next killing was that of Buckshot Roberts at Blazer's Mill, near the Mescalero Reservation buildings, an affair described in an earlier 1001 Stories of the Old West episode. Check that one out. Thirteen men later of the Kids Gang, led by Dick Brewer, attacked Roberts, who killed Dick Brewer before he himself died. The death of Brewer left the kid chief of the McSween forces. A great bloodlust now possessed all the population. It wanted no law. There is no doubt about the intention to make away with Judge Warren Bristol of the circuit court. The judge, knowing of these turbulent times in Lincoln, decided not to hold court. He sent word to Sheriff William Brady to open court and then at once to adjourn it. This was on April 1st, 1878. Sheriff Brady, in walking down the street towards the dwelling house in which the court sessions were being held, was obliged to pass the McSween store and residence. Behind the corral wall, there lay, in ambush, Billy the Kid and at least five others of his gang. Brady was accompanied by three men. The Kid and his men waited until the victims had gone by. Then a volley was fired. Sheriff Brady shot in the back slowly sank down, his knees weakening under him. My God! My God! My God! he exclaimed as he gradually dropped. He had been struck in the back by five balls. As he sank down, he turned his head to see his murderers, and as he did so, received a ball in the eye, and so fell dead. George Hinman, the deputy, also shot in the back, ran down the street about 150 yards before he fell. He lay in the street, and few dared to go out to him. A saloon keeper, Ike Stockton, himself a bad man and later killed in Durango, Colorado, offered him a drink of water, which he brought to him in his hat, and Hinman, accepting it, fell back dead. The murder of Sheriff Brady left the country without even the semblance of law. But each party now took steps to set up legal machinery of its own as cover for its own act. The old Justice of the Peace, John Wilson, would issue a warrant on any pretext for any person. But there must be someone with authority to serve the process. In a quasi-election, 
The McSween faction instituted John Copeland as their sheriff. The Murphy faction held that Copeland never qualified as sheriff. He lived with McSween part of the time. It was understood that he was sheriff for the purpose of bothering nobody but the Murphy people. Meantime, the other party were not thus to be surpassed. In June 1878, Governor Axtell appointed George Pepin as sheriff of Lincoln County. Pepin, qualified at Messiah, came back to Lincoln and demanded of Copeland the warrants in his possession. He had, on his part, 12 warrants for the arrest of members of the McSween gang. Little lack now to add confusion in this bloody coil. The country was split into two factions. Each had a sheriff as a figurehead. What and where was the law? Pepin had to get fighting men to serve his warrants, and he could not always be particular about the social standing of his posses. He had a thankless and dangerous position as the Murphy Sheriff. Most of his posses were recruited from among the small ranchers and cowboys of the lower Pecos. Pepin was sheriff only a few months and threw up the job, $2,800 in debt. Men of both parties were now scouting about for each other here and there over a district more than 100 miles square. But presently, the war was to take on the dignity of a pitched battle. Early in July 1878, the kid and his gang rounded up at the McSween house. There were a dozen white desperados in their party and about 40 Mexicans also identified with the McSween faction. These were quartered in the Montana and Ellis residences well down the street. The Murphy forces now surrounded the McSween house, and at once a pitched battle began. The McSween men started firing from the windows and loopholes of their fortress. The Pepin men replied. The town divided against itself, held under cover. For three days, the two little armies lay there, separated by the distance of a street. Perhaps 60 men in all on the McSween side, perhaps 30 or 40 in all on the Murphy-Pepin side, of whom 19 were Americans. To keep the McSween men inside their fortifications, Pepin had three men posted on the mountainside whence they could look down directly upon the top of the houses, as the mountain here rises up sharply back of the narrow line of adobe buildings. These pickets, one of whom was Charlie Crawford, with their long-range buffalo guns, threw a good many heavy slugs of lead into the McSween house. At last, one Fernando Herrera, a McSween man, standing in the back door of the Montana house, fired at a distance of about 900 yards at one of those pickets. The shot cut Crawford down, and he lay with his back broken behind a rock on the mountainside in the hot sun nearly all day. Crawford was later brought down to the street. Medical attendance, there was none, and few dared to offer sympathy. But Captain Sanernino Baca carried Crawford a drink of water. The death of Crawford ended the second day's fighting. Pepin's party now numbered 16 men from the Seven Rivers country and 28 overall. About noon of the third day, old Andy Boyle, ex-soldier of the British Army, said, Well, we have got to get a cannon and blow in the doors. I'll go up to the fort and steal a cannon. Halfway up to the fort, he found his cannon. 
two Gatling guns, and a troop of colored cavalry. Already on the road to stop what had been reported as firing on women and children. The detachment was under charge of the commanding officer of Fort Stanton, Colonel Dudley, who marched with his men past the beleaguered house and drew them up below the place. Colonel Dudley was besought by Mrs. McSween, who came out under fire to save her husband's life, but he refused to interfere or take side in the matter, saying that the sheriff of the county was there and in charge of his own posse. Mrs. McSween refused to accept protection and go up to the post, but returned to her husband for what she knew must soon be the end. McSween, ex-minister, lawyer, honest or dishonest instigator, innocent or malicious cause of all these bloody scenes, now sat in the house, his head bowed in his hands, the picture of foreboding despair. His nerve was absolutely gone. No one paid any attention to him. His wife, the actual leader, was far braver than he. The kid was the commander. They'd kill us all if we surrendered, he said. We'll shoot it out. Old Andy Boyle got some sticks and some coal oil and, under protection of rifles, started a fire against the street door of the house. Jack Long and two others also fired the house in the rear. A keg of powder had been concealed under the floor. The flames reached this powder, and there was an explosion which did more than anything else toward ending the siege. At about dusk, Bob Beckwith, Old Man Pierce, and one other man ran around toward the rear of the house. Beckwith called out to the inmates to surrender. They demanded that the sheriff come for a parley. I'm a deputy sheriff, replied Beckwith. It was dark, or nearly so. Several figures burst out of the rear door of the burning house. Among these, the unfortunate McSween. The flashing of six-shooters at close range ended the three days' battle. McSween, still unarmed, dropped dead. He was found half-sinning, half-leaning, against the corral wall. Bob Beckwith of the Pepin Forces fell almost at the same time, killed by Billy the Kid. With the McSween party, there was one game Mexican, Eganio Salazar, who was, by miracle, alive at the time of this writing. In the rush from the house, Salazar was shot down, being struck by two bullets. He feigned death. Old Andy Boyle stood over him with his gun cocked. I guess he's dead, said Andy. If I thought he wasn't, I'd shoot him some more. They then jumped on Salazar's body to assure themselves. In the darkness, Salazar rolled over into a ditch. Later, made his escape, stopped his wounds with some corn husks, and found concealment in a Mexican house until he subsequently recovered. This fight cost McSween his life just at the point when he thought he had attained success. Four days before he was killed, he had word from the United States government's commissioner that the president had deposed Governor Axtell of New Mexico on account of his appointment of Pepin as sheriff and on charges that Axtell was favoring the Murphy faction. General Lew Wallace was now sent out as governor of New Mexico and invested with extraordinary powers. He needed them. 
President Hayes had issued governmental proclamation calling upon these desperate fighting men to lay down their arms, but it was not certain they would easily be persuaded. It was a long way to Washington and a short way to a six-shooter. General Wallace assured Mrs. McSween of protection, but he found that there was no such thing as getting to the bottom of the Lincoln County War. It would have been necessary to hang the entire population of the county to execute a formal justice. Almost none of the indictments stuck, and one by one the cases were dismissed. The thing was too big for the law. The only man ever actually indicted and brought to trial for a killing during the Lincoln County War was Billy the Kid. And there is many a resident today who declares that the kid was made a scapegoat. And many a man, even today, charges Governor Wallace with bad faith. Governor Wallace met the kid by appointment at the Ellis House in Lincoln. The kid came in fully armed. And the old soldier was surprised to see in him a bright-faced and pleasant-talking boy. In the presence of two witnesses, Governor Wallace asked the kid to come in and lay down his arms and promised to pardon him if he would stand his trial and if he should be convicted in the courts. The kid declined. There's no justice for me in the courts of this country now, he said he. I've gone too far. And so he went back with his little gang of outlaws to meet a dramatic end after further incidents in a singular and blood-stained career. The Lincoln County War now spread wider than even the boundaries of the United States. A United States deputy, Weiderman, had been employed by the father of the murdered J.H. Tunstall to take care of the Tunstall estate and to secure some kind of British revenge for his murder. Weiderman falsely persuaded Tunstall's father that he had helped kill Frank Baker and Billy Morton, and Tunstall's father made him rich. Weiderman went to England where it was safer. The British legation took up the matter of Tunstall's death, and the slow-moving governmental wheels at Washington began to revolve. A United States indemnity was paid for Tunstall's life. Mrs. McSween, meantime, kept up her work in the local courts. Sometime after her husband's death, she employed a lawyer by the name of Chapman of Las Vegas, New Mexico, a one-armed man to undertake the dangerous task of aiding her in her work of revenge. By this time, most of the fighters were disposed to lay down their arms. The whole society of the country had been ruined by the war. Murphy and Co. had long ago mortgaged everything they had, and a good many things which they did not have, for example, some of John Chisholm's cattle, to Tom Catron of Santa Fe. A big peace talk was made in the town, and it was agreed that, as there was no longer any advantage of a financial nature in keeping up the war, all parties concerned might as well quit organized fighting and engage in individual pillage instead. Murphy and Co. were ruined. Murphy and McSween were both dead. Chisholm could be depended upon to pay some of the debts to the warriors through stolen cattle, if not through signed checks. Why, then, should good game men go on killing each other for nothing? This was the argument used. 
In this conference, there were on the Murphy side Jesse Evans, Jimmy Dolan, and Bill Campbell. On the other side were Billy the Kid, Tom O'Folliard, and Eugenio Salazar. Each of these men had a Colt 45 at his belt and a cocked Winchester in his hand. At last, however, the six men shook hands. They agreed to end the war. Then, frontier fashion, they set off for the nearest saloon. The Las Vegas lawyer, Chapman, happened across the street as these desperate fighting men, used to killing, now well drunken, came out all armed and all swearing friendship. Halt, you there, cried the drunk Bill Campbell to Chapman, and the latter paused. Damn you, said Campbell to Chapman, you're the son of a that came down here to stir up trouble among us fellows. We're peaceful, it's all settled, and we're friends now. Now damn you, just to show you we're peaceable too, you dance. I'm a gentleman, said Chapman, and I'll dance for no ruffian. An instant later, shot through the heart by Campbell's six-shooter, as is alleged, he lay dead in the roadway. No one dared disturb his body. He was shot at such close range that some papers in his coat pocket took fire from the powder flash, and his body was partially consumed as it lay there in the road. For this killing, Jimmy Dolan, Billy Matthews, and Bill Campbell were indicted and tried. Dolan and Matthews were acquitted. Campbell, in default of a better jail, was kept in the guardhouse at Fort Stanton. One night he disappeared in company with his guard and some United States cavalry horses. Since then, nothing has been heard of him. His real name was not Campbell, but Ed Richardson. Billy the Kid did not kill John Chisholm, though all the country wondered at that fact. There was a story that he forced Chisholm to sign a bill of sale for 800 head of cattle. He claimed that Chisholm owed money to the McSween fighting men, to whom he had promised salaries which were never paid. But no evidence exists that Chisholm ever made such a promise, although he sometimes sent a wagon load of supplies to the McSween fighting men. John Chisholm died of cancer at Eureka Springs, Missouri, December 26, 1884, and his great holdings as a cattle king afterward became somewhat involved. He could have sold out for $600,000, but later mortgaged his holdings for $250,000. He was concerned in a packing plant at Kansas City, a business into which he was drawn by others and of which he knew nothing. Major Murphy died at Santa Fe before the big fight at Lincoln. Jimmy Dolan died a few years later and lies buried in the little graveyard near the Fritz Ranch. Riley, the other member of the firm, went to Colorado and was last heard of at Rocky Ford where he was prosperous. The heritage of hatred was about all that McSween left to his widow, who presently married George Barber at Lincoln and later proved herself to be a good businesswoman, good enough to make a fortune in the cattle business, from the 400 head of cattle John Chisholm gave her to settle a debt he owed McSween. She afterward established a fine ranch near Three Rivers, New Mexico. Pepin, known as the Murphy Sheriff by the McSween faction, lived out his life on his little holding at the edge of Lincoln Placita.
He died in 1905. His rival, John Copeland, died in 1902. The street of Lincoln, one of the bloodiest of its size in the world, is silent. The law has arisen over the ruin wrought by lawlessness. It is a noteworthy fact that although the law never punished the participants in this border conflict, the lawlessness was never ended by any vigilante movement. The fighting was so desperate and prolonged that it came to be held as warfare and not as murder. There is no doubt that, barring the border fighting of Kansas and Missouri, this was the greatest of American border wars. Thus ends the story of the Lincoln County Wars. Today, the entire town of Lincoln is preserved as a New Mexico State Historical Park. And in the first weekend in August every year, the longest-running folk pageant in the world, Old Lincoln Days and the Last Escape of Billy the Kid, is held in the town of Lincoln. This annual folk pageant with reenactors portraying Billy the Kid's last escape and the notorious Lincoln County War is absolutely worth the trip and a fantastic way to acquaint yourself with Billy the Kid Country. 2022 marked this pageant's 81st year. So if you got a hankering, I'm telling you, take the trip. Now you might ask, what about Pat Garrett? Well, come back next week and you'll find out. Over the next two weeks, we'll read Charles Seringo's History of Billy the Kid, the true life of the most daring young outlaw of the age. We'll see you next time on 1001 Stories from the Old West. And as always, like us, follow us, leave us a review, support us on Patreon, share us with your friends and family. Heck, send links to people you don't even like. Just get the word out. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.